We are in this last week of one of my all-time favorite series, Legacies, looking at what each of us is leaving behind. Now, I kicked off the series, if you were here, I, I think, to me, the most powerful uh, thing was looking at the legacies of real lives and real people in this world. And I showed you, I hope, I showed myself at least, that my legacy, your legacy, really, really, really matters. It is generationally powerful. It is, it is generationally, and I guess I would argue eternally formative. We looked at those real-life modern families, the power of one man or one woman, their life, to literally change the destinies of entire families. This is not unrelatable. It's not theoretical. The way you live your life impacts others. How you live will impact their lives forever and ever and ever. Now, my premise has been that everybody wants to leave a legacy, something that will live beyond them. But my, pro my promise to you has been this. You don't have to worry about that because everybody is leaving a legacy. There is a familial and a relational inheritance in the lives that those we love and are close to that we are leaving behind. It's true. The only question is, what is it? So I've been encouraging you week after week to choose to leave intentional legacies and avoid unintentional ones. I've asked you to consider leaving as your legacy three eternal virtues, faith, hope, and love. Why? Because faith changes the way people live. It will change the way your children and your grandchildren live. Hope changes the way they feel. And love changes the who that we and they are. And finally, last week, I gave you the value that seems to me to be the supreme value to leave behind, and it was Maybe an unthinkable one. I know it's an uncomfortable one. Generosity. Because generosity is the practical outworking of faith, hope, and love. You cannot live lives of faith, hope, and love without being generous. Those virtues will always promote and result in generosity. And so today we're done. Now you can try. I hope I've convinced you to try really hard to leave intentional legacies. I hope you will. You can preach and teach to your kids. You can walk and then uh, talk and walk it out with them. You could do everything right for years. But there's only one thing when it's all said and done that will either seal your legacy or steal your legacy. The amazing part is it's the exact same thing that will either seal or steal it. It works powerfully in both ways. And it's your personal integrity. Your legacy, I, I promise you, your legacy will only go as far as your integrity will take it. Your legacy will only last as long as your integrity will carry it. Your legacy, your personal integrity, despite all the work you've done, your personal integrity will either seal that deeply into the souls of those who come behind you, or it will steal it from their thoughts and minds. It's that important, it's that powerful, the power of personal integrity. Now, when I say integrity, I want to define what I'm talking about. I'm not necessarily talking about your ability to live up to an external moral code. That's often what people think of. It's an ethics issue. In fact, here's what our faith tells us. Here's what we just celebrated in communion. That Jesus has met, he's kept, and he's exceeded the moral code. And he's done it not on his own behalf, but on ours. You cannot have faith, hope, and love 
without being generous, right? We've talked about that. Uh, this is the legacy of Christ. You cannot have faith, hope, and love and be generous without giving. And so here's what we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved that he gave. Moral code met on your behalf. On your behalf. So today when I speak of personal integrity, I'm not talking about trying to be better people. Jesus has already exceeded that, and he's done it on your behalf. Now, the kind of integrity I'm talking about this morning that either seals deeply in those that come after you or steals your legacy, it actually comes, well, it actually comes from the root word from which we get this word integrity. It's actually a math word. It's, it's Latin. It's the word integer. It means, if you look it up, a whole number. So integrity... Actually, the kind I'm talking about has the meaning of being whole or complete or undivided. It's, it's defined as unbroken completeness. That's the kind of integrity in your life that will either seal deeply into your children and your grandchildren your legacy, or it will steal it from their mind and your history. The kind of integrity is all around us in God's creation. God created his order to be integrated. We're not only familiar with this integration in the created order, we rely on it. Several years ago, a bunch of us went to a, woo, you know, it's hard when the, the example's around. Several years ago, many of us went to a church out in Chicago for a creative arts conference. And I'll never forget the example that this pastor gave there. It was... Uh, well, it was really creative, right? He gave a talk on personal integrity. Now, here's the deal. I can't actually remember anything he said about personal integrity. I can only remember the visual he gave on personal integrity, uh, this idea of being integrated, whole, and, and not divided, that God has created a, a creation, a created order that is, is integrity, in, in, integrated. He took a watermelon, and because it was a creative arts conference, right, the guy put on a, a samurai outfit, and he took a giant samurai sword, I'm not going to do that with you this morning, mostly because I'm afraid I might hurt myself, right? I can't remember what he said, but I remember what he did. So here's what he did. He got up, and with that giant sword, he took a watermelon. Now, you know, watermelons aren't cheap in February, by the way. So I, I didn't want to waste one at home last night. It was too cheap, as you remember from last week, to do that. So I'm hoping that what is in here is going to be what I believe is in here. You know why I believe what is going to be in here? Because God's created order has integrity. When I see something that looks like this, and I pick it up and I pay a ridiculous price at ShopRite, right? I'm doing it because I believe in the integrity of God's design. That when I cut into this, what's going to be in here? Anybody want to tell me what color of what I'm about to experience is? It would have been much more dramatic with a samurai sword. But it is, surprise, surprise, it is what I thought. I could, it's not a guacamole, right? I opened it up. I looked at what was on the outside, and therefore I knew what was on the inside. This is God's creative order, right? It's, it's integrated. You can trust on it. Look, entire industries are built on this. I always go to see my brother uh, sometime in the winter. He lives in Florida. And every time I'm in Florida, there are these giant 18-wheel trucks that are driving by, and the, the, the back is open, and they're loaded with oranges. 
Now, nobody, the, the, the industry doesn't cut the orange open to go, oh, let me see if there's an orange in here before I sell it. They rely on it. They don't need to, right? They don't need to look inside. God has already created this integrated order. It doesn't matter what you do. Here's a tomato, right? I'm going to cut this tomato. Does anybody want to guess what color this tomato is going to be when I cut it open? Oh, it's a beautiful red tomato. These are for sale 50% off right after the service today. <laughs> if you eat it, it'll be fresh as a daisy when you get it home. I mean, you could do this over and over again. This is an orange. When I cut this orange, what color is it going to be inside? Oh, the blood orange. I forgot about the blood orange. See, here's the thing, right? The blood orange is integrated. When I bought it, it said right over the top of it, blood orange. I hadn't actually cut into it because I was too cheap to waste one. I was hoping it was going to be red when I got inside. Right? God's creation exists in perfect integrity. We rely on it. God's people often, often don't consist of that kind of integrity. Put more simply, I tend to be a lot more like a blood orange than I do a watermelon. Way too often for me, I'm not proud to admit it, and if I might conjecture for you, what you see on the outside isn't perfectly matched on the inside. The values, the virtues that I espouse every Sunday morning to you that I talk of and, and, and walk with sometimes... Sometimes when no one's looking, aren't there. See, here's the problem when it comes to legacies and inheritances. Oftentimes the people who we want to leave them with are the people that are closest to us, and they're the ones that are looking. They're the ones in our house, our homes, our jobs, the cube next to us. See, this is the thing about personal integrity. The truth is... Breaking news, it's anything but personal. Or it's, it's not just private. See, your personal integrity has public ramifications, public costs. I saw integrity explained this way. You might be familiar with the term structural integrity. Structural integrity is defined as the ability of a structure to withstand its intended loading without failing due to fracture or deformation or fatigue. Have you ever played Jenga? It's a giant game based on guessing structural integrity, right? Like when you first built the tower, each piece was perfectly bearing what it was intended to bear, right? What happens as you begin to pull the pieces out? A piece that used to move quite freely is suddenly weight-bearing beyond its design, and the entire structure is impacted. The failure of integrity on one part impacts whether it likes it or not, the failure on others. That's the way it is with structural integrity. That's the way it is with personal integrity. See, the same is true for us. A failure in one person's personal integrity, mine as a pastor, mine as a father, when it can't be relied upon, it adds stress and undue burden and pressure to all of those around. And oftentimes, here's the truth, oftentimes it's, it's to those and put on those to whom we want to leave these legacies. Now, as the writers of the Bible, uh, you can imagine, they have lots to say about personal integrity. 
Some of you know the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to a church in the city of Galatia. He described what we've come to know as the fruit of the Spirit, things that we should see, here it is, on the outside of people, right? That would match what's going on on the inside. An inside occupied by God should on the outside have certain fruits that you would witness and see. If you grew up in the church, maybe you memorized these as a kid. I remember when, when my daughter Courtney was growing up, she was never one for studying that girl. And uh, she was assigned to know the fruits of the Spirit and to go back to church on Sunday. And, you know, this was, at the time, I was not a pastor. I was just an elder in the church. But this was still somewhat humiliating. She did not study, nor did she even tell us that she was supposed to study. And she went upstairs, and they said, Courtney, it's your turn. Name a fruit of the Spirit. What is a fruit of the Spirit? And Courtney said, an orange. She wasn't so embarrassed I was. See, one of the fruits that Courtney did memorize and should have was goodness. And that word translated in the Greek that was written to the Galatians, it carries with it the concept of integrity. Somebody in whom God's spirit resides is integrated. The outside matches the inside. But there's so many examples. Uh, Israel's great King David. The scriptures say that he was a man after God's own heart. Here's what he said that he knew. I love the wording. I know, my God, that you test the heart and you are pleased with integrity. It makes him smile. Of course it does. The writers of Proverbs, it's this ancient book of wisdom in the center of your Bible, right? You want some wisdom. How about this one? Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is, uh, than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. I mean, the entire, the entire population is looking to leave an inheritance of money or homes or riches. Wisdom goes, forget about it. Leave integrity. But I think my favorite one is this. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. What's going on on the outside doesn't match what's happening on the inside. Integrity, listen now, is not just a trait. Here's what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, it's, it's not just a destination, it's a guide. It's for us, if we don't blow it, for those of us who would follow, it, follow integrity, it will for your life, and if you get this right, it will be echoed in your children's lives and your grandchildren's lives, a roadmap for their decision-making. Integrity will be your guide. Which at first is a little confusing. I mean, how would integrity guide me? Well, here's the thing about integrity. Have you ever noticed this? Everybody has integrity, until it costs them something. Think about that, right? My actions always match my words until aligning my actions with my words has some cost. And most of us do all we can to avoid making choices that cost us something, that aren't going to benefit us, at least in the short term. I mean, I want to leave, I'm, I'm asking you to consider leaving a legacy of faith and hope and love. I want to leave a legacy of generosity. And I try really hard until I realize that it'll cost something. Then I might make the mistake, and I'm going to show you in a minute what I'm talking about. When costs get involved, all of a sudden I might make the mistake of sacrificing faith or hope or love because they're going to cost me something, sacrificing everything it is I want to leave because there's a cost. See, my personal integrity, your personal integrity has generational ripples, generational power. 
Now, we all have to understand this to live lives of hope and faith and love, right? If you want to leave those kind of legacies, it's going to cost you something. You could go by one by one through them. If you want to live in radical obedience to God's will for your life because you have faith in the promises of God, sooner or later, that will cost you something. Don't kid yourself. To store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth so our hope is not here but there, that's going to cost you something. And to love, to be patient and kind and humble and forgiving and trusting, I promise you it's going to cost you something. And when the choice comes, and it will come, I promise you it will come, whether to sacrifice generational legacy for immediate gain or relief or pleasure, the one thing, the only thing that can provide for you a north star in that moment, the one thing that can be your guide in that choice is this, your personal integrity. It will be your guide. Now, the watermelon and the blood orange are good visual pictures of integrity. I, I think they'll stick with you. I'm a lot more often like a blood orange than I am a watermelon. But I want to give you another one, a word picture in, in terms of the powerful uh, power of personal integrity to guide. It comes from a very ancient story. Many of you are going to know it, but you've never actually viewed it this way, I guess. Uh, I think the, the scriptures place this story so early in recorded human history because it's so common in our own personal story. It's in Genesis, this first book of the Bible, this book of origins, and it's a story about two brothers. One's name is Jacob, and the other's name is Esau. They're the grandchildren of Abraham. Now, here's what we know of them. The scriptures say that the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of open country, while Jacob was content to stay home and play video games in his parents' basement. Essentially, it says that. It says that he was content to stay home among the tents. One was a man's man, if you will. The other was more of a mama's boy. One was hunting, one was gaming in a different kind of way. As you can probably guess, the next line in the story is kind of familiar. Isaac, their father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, their mother, loved Jacob, the first recorded mama's boy in all of history. Now, here's an important detail in the story. Jacob is the younger brother, Esau's the older brother. And to be the older brother in ancient times, in many ways, you have hit the lottery. Because here how it, how, here's how it goes. Upon the death of your father, in the case of their father, uh, the, the, the boys, it's their father Isaac, the firstborn son becomes the new head of the family. And in ancient times, that was everything. You were in charge of everybody. This was his right because of the order of birth. He was actually referred to as the birthright son. That's the birthright son. The birthright son was entitled to a double portion, twice as much as the other son, of the father's inheritance. The second portion, and the other thing was he was now the new head responsible for all of the family's affairs. So as a firstborn son, he could preside over everything. As the firstborn, your birthright was this. You got money and you have power. I mean, isn't this, this is a story of what everybody wants. All of us want this. He's got money, he's got power. These are ancient times. That's quite an inheritance. And here's what happens. I mean, think about it. If you know the story, I'm going to share it with you in a second. Enter the story. I mean, how could you, especially in those days, how could you even put a price tag on that? What would it be worth to get double the inheritance but not just that, to be in charge. 
to like decide how the family's going to go, where they're going to live, what they're going to do. I mean, what a legacy. What a legacy. What an inheritance. And so now, I, I know a lot of you know this story. It goes on something like this. One day the boys are doing what they always do. Esau, he's out in the field, maybe with his father, doing manly things, right? He's hunting and he's gathering. He's the Marlboro man of the day. And Jacob is doing what Jacob does. He's home, hanging out with mom in the kitchen, cooking stew. He's the Bobby Flay of the day. And this day, after Esau had been out doing what manly men do, he comes home, and he is as manly men tend to be after a hard day's work. He comes home, and he's coming up the driveway, and he's hungry, and he smells something cooking inside. The scriptures record that once Jacob was uh, cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of the red stew. I'm famished. The operative word in the whole sentence, quick, quick. Like right now, I need it right now. Like I want, I, I, I see the stew, I smell the stew, I want the stew. What would you like right now? I have a desire for it. It needs to be met. See, I want you to remember this now. Long-term legacies and short-term appetites make really bad partnerships. And so Jacob, he senses an opportunity. He proposes a ridiculous idea. I mean, to the original audience that this story was told, they would have thought this was a joke. They would have laughed out loud when they heard this line. It's that preposterous. Uh, it's almost as if the authors are trying to tell us something. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. <laughs> For a bowl of stew? Are you kidding me? I mean, this is an outlandish request. His, his birthright is what ensures his future. His birthright is his power and his money and his fortune and his identity in a sense. I mean, who in their right mind would ever trade their future, their legacy, their identity, and their reputation for a bowl of stew? It's a ridiculous story, right? Who would do this? Who would trade what they would hand down and hand off to their children and their grandchildren and generations to come? Who would trade a lifetime legacy for some immediate pleasure? Who would ever do something like this? It's crazy. Who would trade their integrity for a bowl of stew, their self-respect for a bowl of stew? Who would trade a relationship with their kids for a bowl of stew? Who would trade a, a relationship with their wives for a bowl of stew? Who would trade their family's futures for a bowl of stew? Who would do that? But when you're hungry, when desire sinks its teeth into you, I mean, when it looks good or smells good, when he looks good or she smells good, when the, the deal looks good and the payoff smells good, it's amazing the trades that we'll make. See, long-term legacies and short-term pleasures make really bad partners, and they tend to make bad deals and really bad trades. I mean, you see what's going on in this story, right? Who would trade their future and their reputation for a bowl of stew? I think what the story is trying to say is, you might. And, and check out what Esau says. He goes, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me anyway? 
I just love this because Esau starts to do what you and I do. First, he exaggerates the situation. I mean, think about it. Who's he really talking to here? Is he really talking to Jacob? No. Jacob loves the deal. He proposed it. He's actually talking to himself. He's trying to convince himself, well, this probably makes some sense. You know, I, 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 I'm really hungry. And what good is the birthright right now? He begins lying to himself. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever had these inner conversations and conflicts. Maybe it's just me. What good is a birthright to me now, he says. I'm going to die right now. And so he's trying to convince himself, but he's lying to himself. You remember the ancient wisdom here? The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Boy, could Esau use a guide right now. But Jacob said, sensing this was going his way, Swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some stew, and he ate and he drank, and he got up and left. And of course, the audience in the original story would have said, This is nuts. This is crazy. This is foolish. I don't know if you have children. Have you ever watched one of your kids? Trade a long-term good future thing because of a momentary desire and just stood on the outside and go, what are you doing? Don't do that. Don't do that. Have you ever done that? Has anybody ever stood on the outside of you and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Don't do that. But, you know, the answers are usually, but I'm starving right now. What good's the birthright to me? I mean, this girl, my life, my integrity, what good would that be to me right now? Do you know if I take this job or make that deal or agree to this or sign that? Esau did the same thing. And, and then it ends with this. And some of you know what this feels like. And so Esau, now he's done eating. Stu's gone. Esau despised his birthright. What else is he going to do, right? Stew's gone. Momentary pleasure's over. It smelled good. It tasted good. But the stew is gone, and so is his birthright. And as he walks away, legacy gone, inheritance blown. You can also say to himself, hear him saying to himself, stupid birthright. Not such a big deal anyway. I didn't even want it anyway. I hated it. I didn't like the pressure of being the oldest anyway. See, when I read that line, I can't help but think of the story in the Old Testament book of Samuel. It's actually another story of two brothers, Amnon and Absalom. Amnon becomes so obsessed with Absalom's sister Tamar that he comes up with this plot and he rapes Absalom's sister, who is also his half-sister. I mean, who would rape their own sister? But, you know, she looked so good. She smelled so nice. He traded in his integrity for his own bowl of stew. And then after he had finished it, the scriptures say, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her, and Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Now, I know some of you know what that moment feels like, right? Stew's finished. Stew's gone. Integrity and legacy with it. You woke up in the wrong bed, you signed the wrong deal, you made the wrong move, but I mean, what else could you have done, right? I mean, what good was a legacy at that moment? What good was a long-term inheritance when you're hungry right now? And then somehow it's gone, and your integrity with it, and maybe your legacy. 
And oftentimes when we do that, we, we hate it even more. Because integrity was not your guide. Your wants were, your pleasures were, and when you counted the costs in that moment, it just seemed like a good trade, but it wasn't. And it didn't just impact you. You know this. It impacted your legacy. Now, if you know the story of what happens to Jacob and Esau's family, if you know what happens with Amnon and Absalom's family, for generations, their lack of integrity in this one moment, despite what they knew or believed or espoused, their lack of integrity in one moment where it was going to cost them some short-term pleasure to maintain their long-term legacy, it set in motion events that would ripple and ruin their families for generations, all for a bowl of stew. Amnon's stew came in the form of Absalom's sister. And so here is the question. This is why the story is told. What is your bowl of stew? The story, it's one giant flashing scriptural warning. What is the bowl of stew that you might, in the moment, and some of you are really close to this this morning. Some of you actually might be in the midst of it right now. What is the bowl of stew that, given the right set of circumstances, you might trade a birthright for, that you might give up your legacy for? Who is it? What is it that has the potential to steal everything it is that you want to leave behind? And so what are you to do? I mean, is there some way to ensure that my legacy against a bad trade in the moment to make sure that that when I get to that point and the stew is in front of me and it smells good and it looks good, how is it that I'm in that moment I'm going to make the decision uh, that's going to cost me something? How do I make the right choice? The answer, your integrity. I'm going to close with this story, and then we're done. Series over. If you Google stories of integrity in the scriptures, there's a preeminent story that comes up. It's the preeminent character of, the, uh, of authority, in, in a sense, of personal integrity in the scriptures. It's a man named Daniel. His story is told in the Old Testament in the book of his name. There are actually way too many stories in the book about Daniel, of Daniel's integrity, to get into this morning. But I just want to show you one. And how his integrity, his personal integrity, helped him, what it meant for his legacy, and how he didn't take the bowl of stew. Some of you know the story. Around 600 B.C., the Babylonian Empire had conquered Jerusalem. Their king, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken into his service all of the good, strong, bright young men in Judah. And so he takes back as one of his prizes, Daniel. And look, right, nobody wants to be taken back out of his country to a foreign country as a prisoner. But relative to the life that Daniel had been living, and of course relative to being slaughtered on the battlefield or put into some labor camp by this king, being called into the king's service in Babylon, well, it was kind of like being, it's a very similar story, it's kind of like being the firstborn son. You've just been given a great gift. You just won the lottery. You just went from a hard life of barely sustaining yourself in first century hand-to-mouth type of living to the lap of luxury. You go from the poor to the palace. In fact, it's not just that the living's good. The eating is fantastic. You want to hear about a cup of stew? Listen to this. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they would enter the king's service. Daniel gets taken back, and he's literally offered all of the king's food. I mean, that's not a bad life, right? All you got to do is not screw it up, Daniel. Just don't blow the deal. Who wouldn't make this trade? It's the deal of a lifetime. But, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. But Daniel 
See, Daniel was a good Jewish boy, and he was committed to his God, Yahweh, and not to the God of the Babylonians. As a result, he was committed to these strict dietary laws of his people. And right now, it was going to cost him something, like really, really good to stay committed to those things. But Daniel resolved. Daniel made up his mind, I'm not doing it. I'm not falling for it. I'm not succumbing to it. I'm not giving in to it. Daniel made up his mind. Daniel resolved. Daniel chose the cost rather than to sacrifice his integrity. Daniel resolved long before the stew showed up on his plate, I'm not doing it. He didn't make the choice in the moment when he was hungry. He resolved long ago, Yahweh is my king. See, Esau makes the choice in the moment, but Daniel, Daniel long ago had resolved. He knew what could be his stew, and before he got hungry, he had already resolved himself, I'm not doing it. Andy Stanley's got a great line about this story. Uh, He goes, when you do what you ought to, even when it's going to cost you, you set yourself up to experience in your personal story what Daniel experienced is his. When you do what you ought to, even when it's going to cost you, you allow God to make a move in your life. You place yourself squarely in the hands of God, And he lets his integrity, Daniel does, he lets his integrity guide him. When you sacrifice your integrity, you know what you miss out on? When you re-grab control of your life, do you know what you miss out on? You miss out on what God might have done in your life had you kept your integrity, had you trusted in that moment, had you accepted the cost or taken the loss, had you left yourself and your fate and your legacy in God's hands rather than sacrificing it for some short-term gain. And you see it right in the next verse. Maybe some of you were here when I I taught the book of Ruth a while ago. There's this incredible line in the book of Ruth. It it, it says that Ruth meets her future husband this way. And it's because she's out in in a certain field. And as the description of these events happen, the scriptures say, and it just so happened. One of my daughters the other night had a God thing happen. And she texted me at like 1.30 in the morning. I just had an, and it just so happened moment with God. Well, David has a similar moment, but I'm going to give you a new, a new way to think about it. Here's another one of those. Daniel resolves not to defile himself. He chooses his integrity at a great cost. And here's the next words. Now God. Daniel resolved. Now God. Daniel's choice to do what, we, what, what he ought, even with a cost, it opens up the possibility for now God moments for you and your life and your families and your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. Now, God. Daniel resolved. Now, God. Scriptures go on. Now, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, which if you read the rest of the story, you would know this is nuts because the official actually says, if I do this, I'm going to lose my head. Like, literally, I'll be beheaded for not making you eat this food. But for some reason, now God made the official think this, think differently. For some reason, this was the now God moment. God continues to do amazing things. If you know the story, it gets crazier and crazier in Daniel's life. Despite not eating the king's food, only existing on vegetables and water, he winds up in better shape before the king than the men who ate at his table. In fact, this goes on for three years, and Daniel outperforms all of them. The king becomes so impressed by him that he chooses him to be his personal servant, and he remained in this position of influence for 70 years. Generational power. 70 years, he is the king's ear, king after king after king. Daniel is influencing the most powerful men on earth. And what set him up for this? 
What set him up for what God was going to do in his life? What gave him an extraordinary legacy? Two words. Daniel resolved. All these years later. I mean, people are jealous of stuff like this. You know this, right? All these later, years later, people are jealous of this position he's been in for 50 years. The story says this. The administrators and the, and the, and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and in, in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel has been in this position for over 50 years and they can't find one piece of dirt on him. In fact, the enemies of his day recognized this. They said, finally, these men said, we're never going to find any basis for charges against this guy unless it has something to do with the law of God. The only way we're going to get him in trouble is, is if we can set up some kind of trap where he has to follow the law of his God because here's what we know about Daniel. What's on the outside of Daniel is what's on the inside of Daniel. Daniel will follow the law of God before he'll follow the law of man. He doesn't really care about us. He cares. He's got a higher calling which in a way makes him a lot more like Jesus than he was Esau. Here's what the scripture said about Jesus. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus, the man of integrity that pays no attention to what others think, who others are. I'm done. I care about your legacy. I care about mine. I'm, I'm five weeks away from having my first grandchild. This is really fresh to me, and it really matters. This is why people walk away. This is why pastors' kids walk away from, from church all the time, because they see lack of integrity in, in their dads, lack of integrity in, in, in the people of the church. Esau left a legacy. It was unintentional, but it wrecked his family for generations. Amnon left a legacy. It was unintentional, but it wrecked his family for decades. Daniel left a legacy, and it echoes into this room this morning. Do not let the stew of your desires or want or comfort, do not let the opinions and the powers of others steal your integrity and your legacy. But today, while you can, while you can, before it's too late, from this moment on, forget what you've done in the past. Forget, you, can re, you can restore and renew your legacy today, but resolve right now, before it's too late, to choose legacies over stews. Uh, we're going to close. On, it, it's maybe a little self-indulgent, and perhaps you'll forgive me. Um, so, you know, I love my kids a ton. And when my daughter Courtney was getting married, um, I just want to make sure everybody understands. She was married long before she was pregnant. But anyway, uh, she, before she got married, I mean, it's all kind of close right now. Um, so uh, before she got married, my heart was breaking because I love my kids. And uh, when I exercise at the gym, sometimes I, you know, I'm a weird guy, okay? So sometimes I exercise to uh, worship music. Not all the time, so don't think I'm like all that spiritual. A lot of times it's Zach Brown band too, but... This one day I was exercising to that song, um, The Blessing. And Courtney, who goes to the same gym as I, just happened to be there at the same time, and she was on the exercise machine in front of me. And I'm looking at her, and I'm hearing the music go, may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations. And your family, and your children. And I started going, these are my children. And, and this power of legacy started to really hit me. And I'm on this stupid machine crying like... 
crying like uh, Jacob, and because uh, he was kind of a mama's boy. And uh, I, I came up with a crazy idea. I said, boy, wouldn't it be incredibly powerful if all of the generations before you could speak to you in one moment in time, especially a moment like on your wedding day? And I want you to think about your children as we, we do this and bless you. And you could look back and say, I, I remember they pronounced a blessing over me, a generational blessing. And so I set out to give my uh, daughter and my son-in-law a gift, a generational gift. And uh, they didn't know what was going to happen, but at the end of the service, we closed with the blessing. They didn't know that I had been on the road um, all over New Jersey and Delaware, collecting up all their relatives who were older than them, videos of these blessings um, so that they could see them. So as you stand and close in worship, I want you to think of your kids and your grandchildren and the blessing and the power of your legacy that you can leave behind if you will just hold on to your integrity.